The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode was recorded on Wednesday, May 31st and made available to premium subscribers the following day on Thursday, June 1st. So almost a full week ago. If you want to become a premium subscriber, it is very easy to do so. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.com or our substack contrarianpod.substack.com. Benefits are exactly the same at both sites, and they include the Daily Contrarian podcast and briefing, which is released every market day morning by 7 a.m. And this takes a look at the economic data releases, earnings, and other events in the day ahead as a kind of preview of the trading day, all from a contrarian viewpoint, of course. There are numerous other benefits as well. These are all described on the websites mentioned, which are, again, contrarian.supercast.com, contrarianpod.substack.com. Oh, yeah, one of the benefits, you don't have to listen to any of these annoying ads or announcements. Take advantage. I'll see you there. Now, on with today's podcast. Here you go. Enjoy. Naomi Fink, you are the founder and CEO of Euro-Pacifica Consulting out there in Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. And I'm very excited because I've known you for a long time, um, but I've not had you on the podcast yet. But you have some rather contrarian views on inflation. And inflation is something we hear the narrative that it is coming down. 
and that soon the Fed will be able to cut rates, will have to cut rates because of a slowing economy. But you don't quite have that view, at least when it comes to inflation. You view inflation as much more persistent. Tell me about that. Certainly. Well, I think inflation is something that perhaps caught markets and households and investors by surprise. And perhaps it's becoming more the norm to see it sticking around. But um, traditionally, uh, inflation expectations have been very persistent recently in the last few years. We've had very low inflation expectations. So I think it's natural. Uh, we've had very low inflation and that gave rise to low inflation expectations. And so I think it's natural to think that inflation is going to abate and we're going to go back into a very low inflation regime. I disagree. I, um, on the other side, I don't see any hyperinflation expectation, but uh, I think that that, um, that we're going to normalize around a, um, you know, a, a positive rate of inflation, which has been in question over, um, over the, the past few years. And I think it's, it's no longer going to be in question. I think there are several reasons from a macroeconomic perspective why we're not going to see a sudden return to uh, an ultra low inflation environment. Um, one has been the reversal of globalization, at least partially. Um, we saw a decline in prices on trend ever since China joined the WTO at the start of the millennium. And there, there was a, a lot of uh, downward pressure on prices with, uh, with globalization. And that, at least partially, um, has, uh, has started to reverse. And some of it's not probably not going to come back anytime soon. Another uh, aspect is that, uh, well, we heard about Moore's Law for such a, a long time, and now it appears to be something of the past. And I'm not saying that there's not going to be any new technological innovation. I think there is, but there's, it's going to be a challenge to find it. Uh, I don't think that, uh, that just ever cheaper, ever larger capacity semiconductors is uh, going to be a, um, a very steady, dependable source of downward price pressure for producers especially. So I, I think that there are some, that, uh, there's also um, probably a, a lot of interim, maybe not long-term, but uh, geopolitical pressures that are supply shocks, um, uh, unrest um, that, that are, are, are likely to keep um, prices on, uh, on, on the rise rather than de the decline. Um, and then we've seen the other side of some of the demographic pressures that we thought were going to be, uh, bring deflation, which is uh, uh, labor supply shortages. So we, we learned that, um, that demographics can also lend itself to inflationary moves, um, which is a, a completely different interpretation than we had a few years ago when, uh, when prices were on the downtrends. Hmm. Yeah, that's a bunch of stuff right there. Now, where does this leave Fed policy? And does the Fed and their fight against inflation, which has taken the form of QT and interest rate hikes, is that not having an effect at all in your view? Is it having a minimal effect? Do they need to try something new? What is what's going on there? Well, I, it may be argued that we would be worse off if had the Fed done nothing, um, and perhaps we would be in a much more inflationary regime. Uh, that's that's possible. And um, just keeping in mind that the Fed can only really influence inflation expectations rather than inflation that's already happened. Um, what, once the um, 
the the uh, the news is out. Once the uh, the prices have risen, the only thing the Fed really can do is try to bring bring those inflation expectations back around again. Uh, so potentially, that's uh, that's that's been one thing they've been at least partially successful at. The one thing that um, that the Fed isn't able to do is to e eliminate um, business cycles. And so I think the Fed is going to have to to um, to certainly um, in the, the context of business cycles respond if we do see um, higher inflation, if we do see um, demand holding steady. Yeah, it makes sense that um, that they they raise rates. And um, if we do see a recession and um, and then the inflation starts to abate, I would expect them to cut. Uh, I think longer term, though, despite the business cycle, we're probably going to see a normalization to a more positive rate of inflation um, over the next few years. That's that's my view. Will they be able to cut if inflation is still stubborn at 5% plus CPI or even 4%? <laughs> So I would imagine that inflation is likely to fluctuate um, and I wouldn't expect it staying at one level. Um, so it's possible that um, that if we do see demand soften, um, then then prices will come lower. I just don't expect them to stay lower. <laughs> yeah. um, I, so I, I think that it's possible to have uh, to have a business cycle, even if on trends um, prices continue to rise. Um, I, I would think that softer demand would translate into uh, into softer price rises as well. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't think that that's going to be a permanent phenomenon where the Fed can just step away. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and then I, I certainly don't see the, the Fed getting worried about about deflation anytime soon. Yeah, it seems that deflation is a uh, one of, a word of a bygone era at this stage for all the reasons you mentioned. Now, what does the Fed do potentially about their their man yeah their mandate and also their target of two CPI? Is that out the window, or do you think they can achieve that, or do they need to redo it? Well, I think once again we're thinking of a, a long the Fed's. Um, target is is a long term target, um, and it operates monetary policy around that target. And I think historically, um, two percent on average hasn't been a, a very wild target. Um, it's possible that we do see that target need to shift upwards if we see these persistent. Um, Price pressures on the upside. I think it might be a little too soon to say that uh, that we should throw away that target because again we haven't really seen um, what prices do during the recession yet, and that's very important in determining the long-term average. Mm. Do you anticipate a recession this year or soon for the U.S.? I am hesitant to say I anticipate an, an imminent recession, but I'm pretty convinced that we will see a recession sometime. I, I think that we have not eradicated recessions, just like we didn't mm -hmm. eradicate inflation. Um, and whether it's this year or whether it's next year, um, I, I think that that, um, that there is going to be a recession. Um, there is going to be um, the other side of the business cycle at some point. Um, and, uh, and then it, it looks like since we have seen quite a, a healthy expansion up until now, and there are some, you know, there have been some late cycle signals, um, it, whether it's, uh, it's this year or next year, it, it's probably inevitable. Mm, yeah. Okay. Where does this leave investors? And you have a lot of people retiring the baby boomers, 
of course. So you have more people who are going to be on fixed income. Some of them maybe and are postponing their retirement. That's another story for another day. But what does an investor do with this higher inflation, uh, secular higher inflation? Well, this is one thing I have been looking at relatively closely, the impact of inflation on real incomes, especially on real incomes um, over the life cycle in retirement and how that might impact um, retirement decision making, including on uh, timing of retirements. And it can have a real influence and it's probably an influence that we haven't counted on. Um, for example, if we see persistent inflation, um, persistent higher inflation, then the higher the inflation, the more we can expect it to eat into real income and therefore into consumption um, of, of, uh, of households. Um, we can actually, even though short term, perhaps less intuitively, uh, we tend to see sort of savings and consumption um, act in opposite ways. Over the long term, inflation can eat into asset building as well, just by virtue of having less in terms of uh, a real um, real income, therefore um, not uh, having um, less in terms of means to save. Um, so inflation can uh, act as a deterrent to, uh, to savings longer term, mm -hmm. um, which is also obviously in retirement, not going to help much to maintain purchasing power. Mm -hmm. If you have the combination of, um, of the, the inflation eroding purchasing power already and reduced savings. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's not so good. Interestingly, mm. though, when you do have greater price fluctuations and those price fluctuations translate into expectations of, of greater volatility in real incomes, people do tend to engage in precautionary savings. Um, and, um, and then um, that, that can be seen um, from empirical data. And then also um, when we translate it to a theoretical model, um, it, it also, it, it makes theoretical sense. Um, you expect uh, more volatile real income over your lifetime. Uh, you save more and you save earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so then it, it, um, it's possible that there could be some uh, impact to, uh, to savings behaviors. Um, I, I would emphasize though, savings behaviors um, in a theoretical model don't necessarily translate to greater financial literacy in the real world. Mm -hmm. So I, I would think that financial literacy is, uh, is one important tool, mm -hmm. uh, particularly when we look at, uh, at understanding of, uh, of inflation. It's an mm -hmm. important tool to help households cope with uh, fluctuations in real income. Yeah. Well, so there's an option for you. Invest in in uh, financial literacy, like, you know, podcasts and such, just for example. Um, I'm, for I'm example. wondering if you've seen here. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. Going back to inflation and purchasing, consumer purchasing power, the the big retailers, uh, they reported earnings over the last couple of weeks, Walmart, Home Depot, Target, Lowe's, they all pretty much said the same thing, which is that consumers are, are pulling back on big discretionary item purchases. I'm not sure if you saw that. And if you think that maybe this is the, some of this inflation stuff coming home to roost, because as you mentioned at the outset, this would, this would affect consumers purchasing. So you think that could be, or is that just the, the business cycle? 
So I would say that might be indicative more of the business cycle, yeah. simply because if we're looking at the pure influence of inflation, you should be bringing forward a lot of those purchases because you think it's going to cost more uh, in the future if you're looking at trend inflation. So I would say that those are more business cycle indicators mm -hmm. um, rather than a, a real fear of deeply entrenched inflation. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. So where else, um, what other concerns do you have as for this as far as the longer term prospects of inflation are concerned? What can consumers do? What can investors do? Well, investors are probably going to have their work cut out for them. Mm. And I say this because um, the firm is also going to be influenced by, um, by inflation. And um, it's probably going to be the, the firm's job really to, uh, to adapt to, um, to the new normal in terms of inflation. So we've already seen some spikes in purchasing in um, the, the purchasing price index and some Companies have done their best to, to absorb that and uh, ultimately pass on the price rises to, uh, to consumers whilst attempting to maintain their own market power. Um, they've uh, they've seemed to, to do that relatively well so far, but again, I would like to see that over an entire business cycle. And it's a, a certainly a different phenomenon altogether to deal with a, uh, a temporary spike in inflation and um, and uh, a return to, to low inflation versus more volatile inflation or higher inflation over the long term. I think that companies are going to have to innovate in order to, uh, to deal with higher trend inflation and less predictable inflation. That means they, they can't just rely on the same downward trends, whether it's globalization or, or Moore's law or, um, or all of these very reliable, predictable trends that we've had characterizing the last decade, if not more. Um, I think they're going to have to get inventive and creative and think of new ways they can harness technology. And I mean technology in the broader sense. I, I don't just mean development of, um, of, of new tools, um, new technological tools or, um, or consumer facing technology. I'm also thinking of creative ways to allocate labor and, and capital. And one thing I have to, uh, to bring up here is that companies are probably going to be, um, they're, they're going to be de dealing with a skills shortage for quite some time. Um, we, alongside the, um, the decline in prices over the last couple of decades, we've seen this decline in labor share of capital. And sure, that's possible if, um, if just by mobilizing capital, um, then you can continue to maintain your productivity. Um, but there are some signals that that's not going to be possible. There's not been that much attention paid on allocation of labor or just being able to, uh, to cultivate human capital compared to physical capital. So I think that's the new frontier. Um, the firms that are better able to cultivate the human capital and to retain the human capital, to allocate the human capital, are probably going to be those who are, are going to be strongest in a higher inflation environment. Interesting. One thing you didn't mention here was AI, artificial intelligence, major buzzword, of course, nowadays. And one of the ways that people are talking about using it, of course, is to potentially displace certain workers uh, maybe the way that the factories did and other advances in productivity in, in years past. 
Do you think that can be one that one way that can help, or is that just all hype? So I will have to be the contrarian here, good, and good. probably no better place to do it. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that AI is an extremely useful tool, but I believe that's what it is. It's a, a tool. Um, it's, um, the, it, it can help us complete tasks, um, it, uh, but tasks rather than jobs. Mm. Um, I, I believe that, uh, that, that jobs are, are still a, a very much human phenomenon. And, um, and certainly those who are less capable of using the new technology, including IA, are probably going to, uh, sorry, AI, <laughs> are going to be at uh, a disadvantage. That said, humans are, are very um, adaptable creatures. Uh, I, I think that, that, uh, that we have the capability to, uh, to learn an enorm enormous amount of things. Um, and, uh, and on top of that, we're able to emote. We're able to, uh, to have empathy. We're able to, um, to, to, uh, to think of new things that haven't been invented before, something that, uh, that AI has difficulty doing, given that um, most of uh, AI uses pattern detection um, and, um, you know, granted over, over large, large sets of, uh, of data. Um, and, uh, and then there's a great, I think the, the, the scariest thing about AI to me is not the propensity for, um, to usurp human labor, but just to get it wrong. Um, mm. I think I, I was at a, I was at AEA one year and, um, and then there was, um, there was a, a presentation given on AI, and um, one of the points that that was brought up was that AI is, is supremely good at, at, at detecting patterns. Um, so, for example, um, if you want to distinguish um, cats from dogs, uh, uh, tools are, are getting AI tools are getting better and better at distinguishing cats from dogs, like a picture of a cat versus a picture of a dog. But that's dependent on the information that you give it. So, if there is a disproportionate number of um, of pictures of cats on pianos, then the AI is going to think that, that black and white oblong rectangles are um, characteristics of a cat. Um, whereas, you know, common sense humans, we know it's not. Um, so I, I think that, um, that there, there are definitely uses for, for AI and, um, and it's possible, I guess, um, especially um, given our, uh, um, given human history, that, um, that if we fail to incorporate it and fail to adapt, then um, there are going to be losses in, uh, in human jobs. Um, but uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's probably our, our duty as um, both as, uh, as part of, of the economy individually, and then also um, our, um, our, our policymakers to, uh, to, to really try and figure out how best the, uh, the economy might adapt um, to uh, to incorporate these new tools and also to keep them in check, mm. especially when they get it badly wrong. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You touched on, it. I mean, that you still need to program these things, right? And there's a lot that can go wrong and, and it's not just something where you flip a switch and you go away and that's the end of it. So yeah, there is that. Very cool. Naomi Fink of Europe Pacifica Consulting. I want to take a short break now, uh, give a chance for our sponsors to make themselves heard. And we'll come back then and ask you some more questions. If you are a premium subscriber, do not touch the dial. You will not get the break. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And everybody else to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast. 
where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the Daily Contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Naomi Fink of Euro-Pacifica Consulting. Naomi, this is the segment of the show where we uh, have the guests tell us a little bit more about herself and her uh, station in life and how she came to arrive at it and professional background and such. I know you have a pretty uh, long history on Wall Street um, before you restarted Euro-Pacifica Consulting last year, if I'm not mistaken. So talk talk to us about that. Yeah, so I did found Euro-Pacifica about 10 years ago, and um, and it was a uh, pretty much a, a macro shop. Um, we were doing consulting on, um, on macro with a, a, a big Asia focus, given my own experience in, in Asia, especially Japan, as you might be able to tell with the, the logo here. Um, yeah, the logo of Mount Fuji for those who aren't watching, yes. And um, uh, I... Uh, I, I recently um, have uh, have restarted Euro Pacifica to encompass not only the um, the macro side of things, but also um, the household micro retirement. Um, since I've I've spent the the last six years um, focusing on retirements and um, in household consumer choice myself, mm-hmm. um, and I'm still the uh, the chairperson of uh, of Ebreez Retirement Security Research Center. So, um, yeah, there's uh, there's probably a lot of uh, of macro and micro coming together right now in the world. So um, mm. I'm um, I'm excited to uh, to to marry the two and mm. uh, and delve into it some more. Mm-hmm. And you have a pretty long history on Wall Street as well. Um, some of your jobs were, were macro focused, right? That's correct. Um, I started my my research career as a Forex strategist, um, a, uh, an experience I, I 
um, certainly welcome and celebrate today. It's uh, it, it's just kind of a, a nice way to uh, to see the world in in financial terms. Um, you're always looking at uh, at relative economies, so uh, you're never looking at just one. Um, even if uh, if your concern is the U.S. dollar, it's always the U.S. dollar against uh, the rest of the world. It's trade partners, um, you know, the in, uh, in, uh, investment inward and outward. Um, I, I thought it was a uh, a wonderful foundation on which to explore other asset classes. Um, I, I spent um, a, a bit of time in, uh, in pure macro as well, looking at, uh, at Japan, um, mm -hmm. which is uh, at once probably one of the world's most fascinating and frustrating economies, given the yeah, failure to right. uh, yeah. exit deflation for decades. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I've also looked at, uh, at the equity market, at the Japan equity market, um, which is uh, now now on the rebound. Um, it looks like uh, the reflation is uh, is doing it some good. Not to mention the uh, the yen yen weakness. Um, and um, yeah, of, of late, I've uh, as I mentioned, I've been focusing on uh, multi asset worlds um, and looking at asset allocations for especially for households, um, thinking of retirement, saving for retirement, and uh, and of course in retirement. Mm -hmm. And um, this is uh, th this has been um, uh, certainly a, a new focus and um, and uh, a new set of decisions um, that um, that have uh, have have merited um, understanding some of the macro factors through a, a new lens the uh, the lens of, uh, of of choices that are often influenced by not necessarily rational decision making. Mm, indeed, indeed, and this is. Uh, one of the reasons for uh, being contrarian, or at least having a contrarian uh, view in mind. Uh, speaking of which, Japan equities have gotten a lot of press recently. Warren Buffett uh, investing in them, and a little bit of hype reemerging now, as it tends to do periodically every couple of years. But this time, it seems like there's a little more behind it. And from a contrarian perspective, that would not be when one wants to invest in this market. But for Japan, Japanese stocks, do you think this is still a good time or is it uh, not so much? Well, I think that there has been a chronic undervaluation problem with Japanese equities, as there does tend to be um, every time we see um, a, a situation where where uh, where public growth in the rest of the world eclipses Japan, but mm. we have this we have now this uh, the situation where not only do we have undervaluation in uh, Japanese equities, but we also have a very cheap yen, um, which is not only good for for trade because we know as we know there was a lot of globalization of Japan's trade too, but um, it's a, a good environment for investment for foreign. Um, investors. Mm. So I think that's that's one of the, the big reasons why a lot of the capital is going into Japan now. Structural mm. factors, I would say that there's a good chance. I, I'm not going to say that uh, that it's a foregone conclusion, but I think there's a good chance that Japan now has the means whereby to incorporate some necessary structural reforms. Mm. Uh, with inflation coming back into the question, it's not just a foregone conclusion that you can leave cash at the bank at um, near 0% interest and, uh, and still be able to buy more tomorrow thanks to deflation. So um, now there's an incentive to have to work to allocate the capital a little bit more. Um, possibly that's going to lend itself to, uh, to more investment-friendly governance practices among Japanese companies. Um, mm -hmm. 
uh, and so there have been some hopeful signals. I mean, even over the last years when yeah. people didn't like Japan at all, you know, there's been a, a governance code and a stewardship code introduced. Um, there have been there's been a lot more focus on uh, by large investors, even within Japan, on the governance of, uh, of firms. There's a lot more ESG focus, for instance, in Japan and probably the rest of the world, whereas it's very as we know, controversial in the United States, but I mean, the G of ESG is governance. And uh, insofar as governance is related to return on assets, um, an improvement in governance is probably an improvement in return on equity for Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any particular sectors within the Japanese economy that uh, you think might be particularly compelling? Well, I think to begin with, the sectors that have traditionally been very competitive in Japan have been those who um, who are the traditional exporters. So um, whether it's uh, it's in the electronics um, or heavy industry or um, or um, IT related, then um, then I think those are, are, are probably the, the, the clear near-term performers. The harder ones are going to be the services sector firms. Mm. Um, and that's also though where we see the test of governance. If we're actually seeing real change, then the services sector, which has tended to be kind of a buffer, um, I mean, it's very, it's a lot more domestic than uh, than some of these uh, these other sectors. It's been traditionally where um, jobs have been, um, the, uh, the, there's been the, the cushion to uh, to the deflation and uh, and years of, of stagnant growth. Um, not a lot of jobs um, have been uh, shed in Japan if you compare it to, for instance, um, U.S. economic cycles. In the U.S., um, when during economic cycles, then there's a lot more um, job destruction or job elimination. Um, in Japan, traditionally, there's been a lot more um, pay cuts. And uh, and then that itself is uh, is deflationary. <laughs> yeah. um, if um, I, I'm not saying that uh, that Japan is going to suddenly move to a, an American model of job elimination in in cycles, but uh, but it's possible that with the demographics, there's an aging demographic, there is a supply shortage in Japan. There's po- there's possibility to really um, try and uh, and get the the balance right of investment in labor and capital and allocation in labor and capital, and perhaps what we were discussing earlier, the um, the uh, the investment in in AI and how um, how we uh, we use AI matters. Well, um, this might be a, a key point for um, for aging Japan um, if uh, if we get the uh, the ability of um, of the the labor in the market already to leverage um, the uh, the benefits of the uh, the existing technology. Uh, we we might get uh, a good boost to productivity and productivity um, as uh, in in at least as macroeconomists mm-hmm. um, have uh, have modeled um, is uh, is the long term driver of growth. Hmm. Very interesting. Cool. All right, let's go back to inflation really quick. And uh, there's been cost of living adjustments in Social Security, but you've looked into yes. this a little bit, I think. And, and apparently, these are not keeping up with the uh, actual prices. Is that right? Tell me about that. By construction, yes. Okay. Um, the Social Security cost of living adjustments are based on um, 
uh, past months of, uh, of price rises. Um, so you are by definition always lagging. I guess if you have volatile inflation, uh, then um, you'll get a buffer after a period of, uh, of high prices and then that will still last when prices come back down again. Um, I think the, um, the issue here though, is if we have uh, trend inflation, that's not necessarily going to be the, the best for, um, for retirees who aren't, um, aren't earning um, wage income. Uh, and mm. um, beyond that, Social Security, the cost of living adjustments, um, as, uh, as backward looking as they are, still are, are sort of appear to be at least the, uh, the state of the art in terms of cost of living adjustments in pensions. So there are many pensions, public pensions that have um, a far lower or a, um, a, a much more partial adjustment for cost of living than Social Security. And that might be a worry. It's been probably pretty easy to, to uh, to cut down on uh, on some of the um, the liabilities of public pensions by reducing cost of living adjustments without people really feeling too much pain in, in periods of low inflation. But as we head into a period of higher inflation and more volatile inflation, people might feel the effect a lot more of not having that cost of living adjustment. Um, they're going to have to do other things to protect their purchasing power, whether it's work longer or whether it's um, it's it's work part time um, or uh, whether they can um, they can come up with an investment strategy that offers them a, uh, a greater inflation buffer from their own savings. Um, it's um, there are new considerations when we look at volatility and hmm. um, in inflation and uh, and potential higher or, or reduced um, real income due to inflation. Yeah, and it sounds like this will all be bad for the consumer. And uh, yeah, there's a there's a cost of living or, or there's a um, apart from the cost of living index um, for Social Security, there's um, there's an experimental price index for um, for older Americans, the mm -hmm. CPIE. Oh. Um, and um, and I think that that's probably going to be something that we should keep a, a, a very close eye on. I think um, one of the things in a low inflation period that um, that that maybe unduly punished um, older Americans was the cost of medical care. Even in yeah. low inflation environments, then the cost of medical care remained very, very high and, and rising at, at, at rates not seen in other sectors. Mm. Um, so, um, so then that, that was a worry, um, but that was a, a worry in a particular sector. Um, I don't know if we can compartmentalize that anymore for older Americans. It might be um, a, uh, it might be a great challenge now to mm. maintain across the board purchasing power in retirement, not limited to, uh, to medical. Wow. What is the CPIE? What go goes into it other than what would normally be in the regular CPI? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's very similar to uh -huh. the, uh, the regular CPI. It's just weighted such that it represents the consumption basket of older Americans. So for example, you'll have a higher weighting on medical costs. You'll have uh, um, probably a, a lower weighting on um, on discretionary items that you associate with working individuals. Um, so yeah, it's, it's probably mostly in, in the weightings that you'll see the difference. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So what does one do there? I mean, 
one thing that I was thinking about when you're talking about Japan and with its demographic problem is is um, retiring in Japan. But there's a whole bunch of hurdles there that, but there, but but there's Mexico, there's Central America, there's a number of places for Americans at least that are closer, um, and there has been a lot of talk about that. Uh, but what? But that aside, what kind of options does one have as a retiree to cut down cut down on costs and and to yeah to keep the the income? Well, as you mentioned, there is. Uh, the choice of moving. And I'm not even thinking of moving outside of the United States. That's always an option. But um, there's a, a, a big dispersion in cost of living within the United States. Um, right. Recently, I, I worked on a project with, uh, with Alameda County, and uh, that's, that's one of the higher cost areas in the United States. Um, if you want to retire in Alameda County, you'd want a pretty competitive income replacement rate. Um, of course, if you are going to retire, um, I mean, I'm thinking of, of somewhere ultra low cost, um, maybe a, a rural area um, in, um, in Oklahoma, in, uh, Oklahoma um, then you're not going to need the same resources that uh, that you're going to need um, to uh, to maintain your standard of living uh, in Alameda County. Um, that's that's one, but there are many other there are many other things that um, that households can uh, mm. can use to yeah. uh, to maintain their purchasing power. Um, one is investment, and of course, I mean um, we know that investment presupposes that you have sufficient savings to allocate. Um, and if you are in that position of uh, of allocating savings, then um, you are you you would want to be allocating them to um, to more um, to uh, to assets that are are more inflation resistant. And as I mentioned earlier, that ties in with the uh, the firms problem. If you're able to select firms and the assets of firms that are particularly resilient to inflation, so pioneering new technology, um, ability to uh, to pass along price rises, ability to change the um, to substitute and change the mix of uh, of inputs in order to um, to uh, to maintain production at lower cost, um, that's uh, that's the type of firm that you'd want in your portfolio. Mm. Um, I I am aware though that uh, that not that sometimes there are problems that have nothing to do with investment. For instance, saving enough in the first place um, yeah. that's a big challenge for the average American household, especially yeah. given the cuts to uh, to things like um, the the fact that there are. DB pensions are few and far between, even those with, um, you know, not not to mention those with cost of uh, of, of living adjustments. Yeah. Um, we uh, we also have um, have um, some some recent changes in um, in, um, in in defined contribution regulation that have just taken effect. So we don't know whether that's going to be um, enough to uh, to really help people overcome this hurdle of insufficiency of, uh, of private retirement savings. Um, there's also uh, financial literacy, which, uh, which might contribute to saving too little to, to begin with. So, um, you know, how do we actually get people to save from early enough and, and enjoy all those years of, of compounding when they have day-to-day -day challenges to, uh, to deal with? Um, such as allocating their, you know, allocating their household income to living expenses for one. Huh. Um, that's uh, that, that's something that I, I don't think we have a magic solution for. Also, yeah. longevity, longevity. I think that's one of the reasons why um, Social Security is um, 
is uh, is is having a lot of uh, challenges with um, the Social Security trust funds um, is um, is likely to run out soon. So um, yeah. so um, you know we're either going to have to um, uh, boost the uh, the payments in or cut the benefits one or the other or raise um, the retirement age. I mean it's, that would seem something they need to do anyway. I mean when Social Security was enacted, the average life expectancy was a lot lower than it yeah, is but. By default, that's that's a cut to benefits too, because you got sure. fewer years of um, of uh, benefit. And if we do raise the uh, the social security eligibility age, then that also implies um, working longer. So, um, right. if um, if we're, we're to accommodate working longer, then um, employers have to uh, have to they they have to make some adjustments to their policies. Um, they're probably going to have to think of ways in which they can accommodate Medicare eligible uh, workers. For example, this um, you know me Medicare eligibility age is 65, and full Social Security, um, the uh, full retirement age is uh, is 67, and maximum is 70. So um, so it's very feasible that you'll have a lot greater proportion of your workforce being Medicare eligible. Hmm. Um, so well, yeah, there's some. Adjustments that need to employers be made. would like that though, wouldn't they? Because it would be less uh, insurance cost for them if they're if they're already covered by Medicare. Well, I mean, there there are probably some uh, certainly some some advantages, um, yeah. and um, and it it probably is, um, but it's it's still up to employers to kind of change the mix of um, of of their benefits and yeah. uh, and uh, also the the mix of. Um, of employment arrangements, um, it's possible. I, I mean, what we've seen is um, is that people tend to they they tend to retire, um, and then um, and some of them um, tend to retire um, sooner than they originally expected, and some of those people stay retired, but some of them unretire. So, um, do we have the um, the the uh, all of the um, logistics and um, and the structure in place for for people to unretire and potentially work part time or uh, or go back into a different full time arrangement with the Medicare. Um, it's like that. I think there's a lot that still has the infrastructure that that hasn't been set up yet. Right. Um, I mean, we're also working on uh, on trying to prevent um, leakage from retirement plans, um, which tends to happen when people leave employment for whatever right. reason. And um, and I think it was uh, it was David Labson um, at um, several AEAs ago that that demonstrated how you can have a really high contribution rate while you're working, but you have enough um, enough periods of unemployment, and yeah. uh, and then that can all just disappear by retirement age. Um, mm -hmm. And so we haven't really conquered that yet in the United mm -hmm. States. We're working on things like portability, but um, it's it's not perfect. We haven't really addressed the whole uh, longevity problem. Maybe some of it will be um, supplying labor for longer, but then also people tend to be um, more um, they they uh, they they're more susceptible to medical conditions um, mm -hmm. as they uh, get older. So um, so it's possible that there will be a substantial uh, cohort that would like to work longer but is unable to work mm -hmm. longer. And usually, if you're if you're elderly and you have a medical condition, that requires caregiving too. Mm -hmm. So um, there um, and I think one of the the recent. Um, the, the recent EBRI conferences has uh, focused on caregiving, and that's that's another uh, area that we haven't quite figured out yet. Um, how do we support the um, and uh, 
an, an aging economy, a caregiving economy, um, and uh, and try to, uh, to to supply the right choices all throughout the life cycle, including into traditional retirement age. Um, yeah, those are all big questions. And again, it just doesn't look good for the consumer from all of this, especially if you're talking about financial literacy thing, but a lot of financial literacy involves not spending money frivolously and not spending money you don't have and not buying things you don't need, which let's face it is a kind of a big part of the global economy. And Americans doing these things, including on credit, has kind of been the lifeblood of the global economy for some time now, hasn't it? Well, um, when you say that, it reminds me of a debate that I, uh, I I used to have, an ongoing debate with a Japanese economist when I was in Tokyo. Um, the uh, Japanese economist told me, well, you Americans always tell us to consume more in Japan. Um, and that's why we're mired in deflation and we have no growth. But look at you, you're consuming a whole bunch of stuff you don't need on credit. That's right. <laughs> And um, I can't say that's not true. Um, and um, and then as as we've seen, credit and and debt tends to be corrosive to um, to some individual um, uh, some individual consumers, savers, um, uh, livelihoods and lives. Um, however, there's probably a, a happy medium in between having you know, years of deflation and, uh, and poor growth and having um, this, this profligate spending that, that, <laughs> that we Americans are confused mm-hmm. of engaging, are accused of engaging in. Um, I think that there's probably a happy medium where you do have a decent amount of, uh, of financial literacy. And um, it's not about taking no risk, right? I mean, um, if, if we took no risk, we wouldn't have mortgages. We wouldn't have the ability to, um, to uh, I prefer um, taking a, a trip to Italy when we're young to, um, to enrich ourselves rather than dedicating all of that amount to retirement savings. Um, so it's, it's all probably about making, uh, understanding the choices that you're making and their ramifications um, mm-hmm. rather than just shutting down and, um, and doing nothing but, but saving. Um, I think that, uh, that the way that, that we build a, a well-balanced uh, household uh, within the economy is to, uh, is to try to figure out what risks are worth taking and what the trade-offs actually are and not to, uh, to never um, engage in the trade-offs, but really understand what that's, that's going to do for us um, and, um, and to, uh, to try to adapt as well with, uh, with some of the, the, um, the situations that we're faced with, including higher, higher inflation. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's a task for the government. That's a task for households. That's a task for, for the firms. And, um, and then we're probably going to see it play out in markets. Um, there are going to be those who, uh, who are, especially amongst the firms, who adapt successfully, um, much more publicly, uh, and those who adapt less successfully. Unfortunately, we don't have as clear a read on the households until after it's happened. Yeah. So um, probably engaging in things like preventive measures, you know, the, um, the education, financial education uh, campaigns, um, mm. especially trying to reach underrepresented households, um, trying to, uh, to help them, help give them the tools to, to better their, their own lot. That, that's part, that's 
that's of course part of the problem. I'm I'm not saying though <laughs> financial literacy is going to cure the world's ills um, because yeah. there's there's still a role for other players in, in the of economy. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And to your point, America is just 330 million people or so in a world of what seven billion now. So if you have other consumers come online in emerging markets and pick up their purchasing power, you figure that would be able to pick up the slack for the US, although it kind of hasn't happened yet, but it's a slow process, obviously. And, you know, maybe it has started to happen in China, um, you know, started to. Yeah. Well, certainly you'd expect um, emerging economies to grow more quickly um, mm. at uh, on, on trends. Uh, and, um, and I think it's probably a, a benefit if we do see a lot of those economies um, show an ability to, to, uh, to, to use resources such that um, that they are able to bring consumers to a, a more satisfactory standard mm -hmm. of living, mm -hmm. but then also probably um, do it in a way that maybe the U.S. hasn't been the best at, which is uh, trying to use resources in a, a smart way over time for posterity. Mm. Um, there's probably a lot of room to, uh, to develop on that front. Mm. Yes, indeed there is. Yes, there is. All right, very cool. Naomi Fink of Euro-Pacifica Consulting. So I get the Pacific reference. Where's the Euro come from? Is that, uh, yeah, on Euro-Pacifica? Yeah, so um, I, I must say that uh, that that's uh, that comes from my own personal history. I've spent a lot of, uh, of time, both in work and education in Europe, looking oh, at, uh, at Europe. Um, I speak a few, a couple of European languages. Um, and uh, and I've uh, I've I've tended to uh, to favor a lot of the um, the um, connections between Europe and uh, and Asia, um, since there's there's a there's a lot of European investment um, in Asia Pacific. Um, there's a, a a lot of uh, a lot of influence. Um, there's you know, trade, and mm. uh, I've. Um, I, I've I've tended to um, to to look at some of those cross border um, relationships and mm -hmm. um, it's, what European uh, countries yeah. did you live in out of curiosity? So I um, I spent some time in the UK. Mm -hmm. I, um, I I did my um, university years Sorry. there in Scotland. Um, I spent a year of that in Spain okay. in Bilbao. Um, I also did my graduate school at Barcelona Graduate School of Economics, um, okay. and there's certainly a lot of uh, a very healthy um, macroeconomic community there in uh, in Barcelona. Um, it's definitely worthwhile picking um, the, the brains of some of the uh, the researchers there. No question. Um, yeah. I spent some time in France. Um, mm -hmm both uh, as, as uh, a young person in high school and, oh. uh, and then also while working for BNP Paribas. Huh. Um, and um, yeah, I think that, um, that there is a lot, probably there's a lot of exchange between Japan and Europe simply because of the similar demographic challenges mm -hmm. yeah. that, uh, that they've had to face. And, uh, and also um, some of the, um, I, uh, I think that um, Europe wasn't expecting this, but some of the downside price pressures, uh, mm. I, even in, in Germany for many years, inflation tended to be the, uh, the issue. And then mm. uh, suddenly the, um, 
uh, a lot of the world, um, the, um, Europe, Japan, the United States was, uh, was faced by um, potential deflation and everyone started talking about Japanification and a lot of European economies were, were especially interested given, uh, and the, those European economies who were interested tended to be those who, uh, who experienced aging of the mm. um, of the population and uh, a lot of them that had um, current account surpluses like like Germany mm-hmm. um, so I think there's uh, there's probably a lot of uh, of ways in which um, Europe and uh, and some of the Asian economies can learn from each other because now we've uh, we've seen that um, even China is still relative young relative to uh, to Japan but also aging um, so yeah. we all have to to deal with uh, with this um, this problem of sustainability, and you know, while it's a beautiful thing that um, that we're able to uh, to to live longer and um, and and healthier a lot of times, um, it's uh, we're we're still looking at the uh, the optimal way to uh, mm-hmm. to support a large population, a, lar- a mm-hmm. lot of the world's population doing that. Yeah, one thing that Japan has noticed, uh, the last question, then we'll wrap up that, is uh, in terms of immigration. And this is something that Germany has recently, over the last quarter century or so, uh, really, well, I guess it goes back further, but the demographics in Germany, and there's been some articles on this recently, have, has really changed dramatically just over the last 20 years. And as they, and they've also adjusted their citizenship requirements as a result. But Japan, I think, is still doesn't have all that much in terms of immigration, uh, historically and still, right? So I think whenever we think of the pace of change in Japan, typically um, it tends to be more glacial <laughs> than than change even elsewhere. Slower than um, <laughs> even slower in the slower than Europe yeah. in some cases. Yeah. Um, I mean, un- unless there's like there's uh, an immediate impetus to change. Um, and I think that um, that because Japan has uh, has kind of been able to rely on um, on on uh, the current account surplus and being able to uh, to stomach years and years of deflation without um, without anything going seriously awry then there hasn't really been a need as such to um, to encourage large amounts of, uh, of immigration that said uh, there are changes um, as slow as uh, as they've been um, Incoming, there's uh, there's been some changes to uh, to visa requirements, especially in uh, in industries where there are mm-hmm. skill shortages, and I can only imagine that as we go forward and skill shortages get more acute, um, that uh, that process is going to progress. Um, if we take a look at a lot of uh, a lot of the the urban jobs, especially in um, in casual workplaces. Um, there are a lot more young people from Asia Pacific um, working in Japan, and mm. you know, uh, if uh, I, I'm not sure how comprehensively they get considered into the labor statistics, because if you're a student, for example, you're you're a student, you're you're not officially part of the labor force. Um, but um, I, I I mean, there's there are changes afoot, perhaps. Um, not radical changes, not changes that um, that that uh, that are are happening at a a very fast pace, but perhaps more changes than immediately readily apparent. Mm-hmm. Interesting, very interesting. Wouldn't you need to know Japanese though to do a consumer facing job in Japan? You still do generally mm. need to know Japanese, um, and uh, I think one of the the famous 
high hurdles for uh, for mm. foreign born nurses is uh, that you have to pass the highest level of uh, of of Japanese language test, um, which um, you know, I, I personally have done. Um, and um, I, <laughs> and I'm, I'm proud of it because it wasn't that easy. Um, and so if, if you're expecting somebody with with no prior ties to Japan, um, who's already um, engaged in a career in the medical services to uh, to pass that exam it's it, it can be done but mm. it's like it requires it requires more doing than uh, than just getting another a, a job in in uh, another location where you don't have to <laughs> learn yeah, a totally new language that sounds like a major obstacle um geez but there you go if you put your japanese if you learn language uh, japanese as a young person then maybe you, you uh, are an advantage there all right now but i think- also mm. I did want to emphasize, though, that a lot of um, Japanese universities are trying to um, attract foreign talent. They are trying to um, to increase their offerings in English, for instance, oh. um, and they're trying to uh, to make their their student body a little bit more international. So, I mean, again, I don't think that it's like it's um, it's the the type of of shift that you see in in some economies have radically changed their immigration policy, but things are are changing, albeit slowly. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Naomi Fink, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor pa- uh, podcast today. In closing, maybe you can tell our listeners how they can find out more about you. You're not active on social media. I don't think your company website is europacifica.com. I know that. How else can they find out about you and maybe about your research? Yeah. So um, europacifica.com is a good way. Um, I, I am on LinkedIn. Um right although not uh not not on most other social media so mm-hmm. you can certainly find me on on linkedin um and um those interested can also fill in a uh a contact form on uh on our website um yeah. so I will, uh i will link to those and you do regular appearances still on cnbc and bloomberg and such well um i haven't i haven't done regular appearances for some time okay um uh, but um, no I'm uh, <laughs> so this is one of the yeah this is this is this is one of the the first um, I'm just uh, getting things restarted there but uh, okay. yeah I, I am keen on uh, on reengaging um, and I, uh, I I thank all of the um, the kind um, media professionals who've been very patient with me um, <laughs> having to, uh, to to turn down a lot of these uh, these opportunities. Um, so I'm uh, anticipating that's that's going to change pretty cool. shortly. But you don't produce research or, or any kind of thought leadership or anything like that. And it's coming. Oh, it is. Very cool. All right. Watch that space, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Now we think thank you again for for speaking to us today. Long conversation here. Very interesting stuff, a whole bunch of stuff. And with that, we'll shut up. Thank you for listening. Look forward to speaking to you all next week. See you then. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. 
How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.